This is the final week of our series, Is God Good? And just spoiler alert, I am on team God is good, for sure, if you were worried about that for a moment. But we've been saying that if you seek after God, if you spend any amount of time uh, scouring through the scriptures, trying to understand the Bible for yourself, you will quickly come across some troubling things. You'll quickly come across some things that don't seem to make sense, uh, some scary things, some awkward things, and you're like, what are we supposed to do with this? Maybe it's led to more questions in your spiritual journey. Have you ever been reading in the Bible or hearing somebody talk about something in the Bible and you're like, okay, are there like two different gods? Is there like an Old Testament grumpy God and then Jesus is like the hippie God in the New Testament? Is like Old Testament God really angry, but then he got his coffee or his espresso, his espresso and things are all good again? Uh, the question that's really the namesake of this series, you look at some of the things that happen, like, okay, is this God morally good? Does he do the things that I want my kids to do? And they're kind of awkward questions for us to wrestle with, but here at Bridgeway, we want to be a community where we wrestle with the tough questions, the big things of life and faith. And so we've been tackling uh, the, the scary topics, the scary narratives and stories found in the Old Testament, trying to make sense of them all month long. And we've actually, we've already tackled these topics just to catch you guys up in a way of recap. We asked this question, is God legalistic? There's a whole bunch of laws and rules in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. What are they all about? And we looked at them and said that, no, God is not legalistic at all, but God's ancient people, the, the Israelite nation, there were lots of laws and rules to order them because they weren't just a group of religious people. They were a nation and they were incredible. They were progressive. They led to a different kind of life that the world had never seen before, but they're not for us today, that Jesus completed that law, and now our law is to love him and love other people. Well, so no, God is not legalistic. We asked this question on Mother's Day, very apropos, is God sexist? Is God all about men having all the power and all the influence, and women should stay silent and stay in the background? And we said, oh no, that's not God's case at all. Actually, the scriptures were written during a sexist period of history, the most sexist period of history ever, but God was always pulling humanity forward to where men and women had shared leadership, and women were empowered to lead and be all that they were created to be. Last week, my friend Eric McCoy, who's uh, launching a brand new church in the Prue area called Story Church, we had him and his team here, and he shared this incredible message answering this question, is God angry? Is God like the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> that uh, you wouldn't like him when he's angry and he's like quick to you know, fly off the handle and uh, flip out on people, and we discover, no, God's better than that. Um, God, when he does get angry, he's an emotionally invested God who actually, from his love, um, flows anger, because isn't it true that we get the most angry at the people that we love? Right? Am I the only one there? No, we get most angry at the people that we love. And so we said that, yes, God is angry and God is loving, but he's only angry because he loves us and he loves people. And this morning, as we land the metaphorical plane in the series with fear and trepidation, I am uh, tackling this question right here. Is God violent? Uh, I remember the very first time that I started to take the Bible seriously for myself and I started uh, uh, reading it for myself. I was a seventh grader. I was in middle school. And I remember reading Genesis 1. And it's like, oh, this is like a paradise story. This is really cool. And kind of felt like a fantasy novel at the time. But it didn't take long into the first part of our Bibles uh, for me to be like, what the heck is going on here? Like chapter 3, there's the fall of man. Chapter 4, uh, Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, there's a murder in the family. And it's kind of really dramatic there. Move forward just a few chapters 
chapters later and we get the Noah and the ark narrative, the story where, you know, it's kind of like a kid's story, Noah and the ark, where there's two of every animal. Um, But the reality is, if you really think about it with adult eyes, like everybody dies except the people on the ark, and that's kind of a dark story, and God sort of led the whole thing to happen. And so we, we find ourselves pretty quickly spending time in the Bible asking this question, is God violent? Is God bloodthirsty? Is God all about these things? I mean, we pick up the Bible, and it says on the cover of our Bibles, it's the Holy Bible, but we look at some of the violence that we find quickly, and we're like, man, is this more like like a Game of Thrones episode? Like, I know this is important, but I don't know if I want my kids to see these things and to hear these stories because it's so dark at times. And just for a quick example of some of the violence that we find in the Old Testament specifically, there's this crazy, uh, really darkly humorous story that we see in uh, the book of 2 Kings where we come across this guy named Elisha who's a prophet of God, a man of God telling people what's up and how they should be living their lives. And he has an awkward interaction with some uh, kids. We'll just take us here. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. They made fun of him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. And in Hebrew, get out of here, Baldy. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go there. Um, But this is like them making fun of Elisha, this man of God, uh, for having a lack of hair on top of his head. These kids, they just come out of the woodwork to make fun of him. But what happens next is really dark and twisted and weird because Elisha his first response is to call up to God to have God stick up for him. And this is what we're told in the passage. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord, which is weird. That's his first response after being called baldy. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. What is going on here? They made fun of Elisha, and then we're told that there are bears that come out of the woods and maul 42 children, right? That's kind of dark, right? Another example, I grew up in church. I don't know if you guys grew up in church. I'm a 90s kid, so I was growing up in the Sunday school era of church. And I remember we sang all these like Bible nursery rhyme type songs. And uh, there was this one song about the Battle of Jericho. And we're going to talk about the Battle of Jericho this morning. But there was this children's nursery rhyme worship song that we sang. Uh, just to give you a little impression of the song, here's a little Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. This is Frank Sinatra singing this. Uh, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. It's a hooky song. It was fun being a kid. You realize, though, when you sing the walls came tumbling down, everybody dies. And it's a dark story, so it's kind of weird, kind of like following the theme of nursery rhymes always being dark stories. But this stuff is in the Bible, so what do we do with this crazy stuff that we find in the scriptures? Maybe you're saying this to me if we're having a conversation. Yeah, Joel, but like, we shouldn't question God and what he does. I mean, his ways are higher than our ways, and so it's just what God does. God uses violence from time to time. You might be saying that to me, and I I get where you're coming from in that. But the reality is that one reason that we're wrestling with this question, is God violent? Because there are uh, so many people, I have so many friends, people in my generation, probably people in your generation, that grew up in church with the nursery rhyme version of the Bible. Then they grow up, they went to high school, they go to college, and they start to think these things through, and they're dark, and they're scary, and they start asking that question, is God good, is God violent? And then they see it, and they just walk away from the whole church, Jesus, Bible, faith thing, because they can't reconcile what they read in the Bible with the loving God that we sing about. And honestly, they can't reconcile what they read in the Bible with the person of Jesus. So that's why we're tackling this tough question. This is why all week long I have not wanted to give this talk at all, if I can just be honest with you, because it's challenging for me. 
But we're wrestling with it because we want to help you understand the character of who God is. And we also want to help you in a loving way interact with your snarky friends. You know, your friends that think that you're a little nutty for believing in the scriptures and following Jesus. And they think the whole thing's outdated and they like to jab you a little bit. Like, yeah, but you believe in the God that mauled the kids, right? Like they want to throw those little things at you. We want to equip you in a, in a powerful way, but also in a loving way to have a conversation with them, to let them know that you don't have to check your brain at the door when you follow Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is um, we're going to tackle this question, is God violent? And we're going to go to... Um, if I can just be honest with you, like reverse confessional, pastor confessing to you guys this morning, we're going to go to a narrative, a part of the scriptures that I really want to avoid. If I can be real with you, I would love if this wasn't in the Bible. Because it's something that I have wrestled with for a long time. And all the last couple weeks I've been prepping this, I've been wrestling with it, going back and forth and how I understand this kind of thing. But I just want to be real with you that I struggle with what we're going to talk about this morning. I've wrestled with God. I've wrestled with what's in the scriptures about it. But here's the real deal. It's there. It's there. And so we should talk about it. And I want to help equip you in a way so you can talk about it to your friends as well. But we're going to talk about the hardest story in the Bible for me, the conquest of the Canaanites, the conquest of the Amorites or the people of Canaan um, so that God's people, the Israelites, could have the promised land. But to take just a couple steps back before we get into what I find to be a very disturbing story, uh, we need to set us up a little bit of the context of what's happening with the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel was this nation that God chose to work through in a powerful way before Jesus. Jesus was around. So we're going like six to 7,000 years before Jesus. God is working through the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel are his chosen, beloved people, and they actually grew to be so large and so strong that they were actually enslaved by the Egyptian empire, or maybe you've heard of the Pharaoh before. They were enslaved um, for a long time, 400 years, we're told, many generations under uh, the Egyptian pharaohs, um, enforcing them to do hard labor, 24-7, hard labor. They couldn't worship the way they were called to worship, live the way they were called to live for 400 years. But God hears their cry, and he brings Moses and his brother Aaron and, and God's power on full display and miraculously sets the Israelites free after 400 years of slavery. And then they find themselves wandering in the desert like, where do we go next? At least in Egypt, we had some hot food and some shelter. But God promises that his people, the Israelite people, their own land. That's why we call it the promised land. It's going to be their nation, their land, so that they could live and worship the way that they were called to live and worship. But the problem is that it took them a long time to find it. <laughs> because of a lot of their own errors and a lot of their own missteps, it's 40 years they're wandering in the desert. They're a nomadic people before they find this promised land. But after 40 years, they come across, finally, we found the promised land. There's only one problem. It's already occupied. <laughs> There's some people that are already there, set up camp and set up their civilization right there in the land of Canaan, the promised land to God's people, the Israelites. And this is where things take a dark turn. <laughs> because we're told as they're going preparing to go into this land, uh, we're told that God gives them some instructions on what they should do. First, we're going to look at some instructions found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, then we're going to jump to the book of Joshua. But this is the command. This is what they were told to do when they saw that the land, the promised land, was already occupied. In those towns that the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, destroy 
every living thing. You must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Termites, the Patriots, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Go in and wipe them all out. This will prevent the people of the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs in the worship of their gods, which would cause you to sin and deeply is to sin deeply against the Lord your God. And then the book of Joshua tells us how this played out, this command from God. Let's go on to Joshua here. The Israelites completely destroyed every living thing in the city, leaving no survivors. Not a single person was spared. And then Joshua burned the city. Joshua slaughtered all the other kings and their people, completely destroying them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Let me ask you, my friends, what do we do with this? This is the feel-good message of the summer, right? Like, this is some dark, dark stuff. I mean, if, if this bothers you, if some of the language and thinking about what this is really like, it bothers you on an emotional level, um, man, I'm right there with you. If this doesn't bother you, um, you should see somebody. Can we be real? Like this is some scary stuff. This is dark when you play this out and what this actually would have looked like. And to me, the darkest thing that I've got to wrestle with is that the scriptures tell us that who commanded this to happen? God did. I mean, can we just be real for a moment? Like this is the kind of thing that Hitler wanted to do during World War II, just completely exterminate a group of people. And I want to give you the freedom to ask the question, like, is God like that? And if so, is God good if he's like that? And so I imagine in the room this morning, if you're still with us online, um, I imagine that you, you might be having some like questions, some doubts, some tensions raise up in you and your spirit. And I just want to first say like, me too. I'm there with you. The other thing I'd like to say is that Bridgeway, you know, we're a new faith community here in town, but like we want to be a place where we wrestle with the tough stuff together. We, we say all the time that your doubts and questions, uh, man, they are not the enemy of your faith, but silence about those doubts and questions are the enemy of your faith. So speak them out loud, wrestle with them, with other people, because God's big enough for your doubts and questions. That's why group life is so important for us at church, because we want you to be around other like-minded people where you have the safety to actually speak those doubts and those fears and those tensions out loud. But it's okay if you have doubts and questions and tensions about what we just read in the scriptures, because I do too. And I want to give us no illusion this morning that um, I'm going to wrap this message up with a nice bow. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Uh, I, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you that you will not be emotionally or uh, probably you know, intellectually satisfied with what we talk about this morning. Um, because I don't know if I'm 100% there for sure either. But I promise you this, that we're going to look at what some faithful Jesus followers throughout archaeology and throughout church history and other Bible scholars, what they've said as they've wrestled with this. And I want to give us at least some language, some, some options as we try to wrestle with this image of God that we get in this passage and the image of God that we see in the person of Jesus as well. So I want to help us. There's four different things that I think I want to put in front of you um, to let you know that these are ways that might help you as you wrestle with the violence that we see uh, in the conquest of the Canaanite people and the conquest 
of the promised land. So we're going to get a little academic this morning, which I know like 0.4% of you are like, academic, let's go. But just stick with me. We're going to go there together. We're going to try to make it as engaging as possible. But again, I want to equip you in ways that you can wrestle with the violence that we see in the Old Testament together, especially in this passage. The first thing I want to equip you with is this understanding from some different Bible scholars and some archaeologists. They believe that Israel, in the conquest that we read about, they're targeting military centers, not civilian centers. And so the language of them coming in and destroying everyone, slaughtering everyone, it was them targeting military centers, which were full of soldiers, not civilian centers. And to talk about this, we got to go to the story of the Battle of Jericho. Now, for me, growing up, I, I, uh, this was, again, in the song, and it was always like a children's story you hit like every year, which is so weird we hit that every year with kids, right? But the Battle of Jericho, and it's this story where they're coming in, it's the first place that they're going to be strong and courageous um, in their battle to take over the promised land. And God tells them to march around the city of Jericho six days in a row. And on the seventh day, march around the city of Jericho seven times and then blow these horns and the walls of Jericho are going to come crashing down. This is what the story tells us, Right. But what's interesting is when I hear about the story of Jericho, the image I always have in my mind is that Jericho is like the city of Chicago. It's this massive city center with schools and hospitals and all this culture that's built up in the Canaanite culture. I thought that's what Jericho was all about. But did you know that archaeology tells us uh, that Jericho was nothing like that? Jericho was not a, a city. It was actually a military outpost, a military base of the Canaanite people. And it wasn't a massive cityscape. It was actually only three to four acres total. And the ruins that we find find housing for only about 200 to 300 soldiers. I mean, that's pretty small, right? But we learned that it's not a city. It's a military outpost for sure, which changes the picture for me a little bit of the language of them sweeping in and wiping everybody out. It's not like a full city. It's a military base, which it really does change the way that I see it a little bit. So maybe as we look at these passages and we see God telling them to wipe people out, it's not just like a clear picture of them coming into schools and homes where there are kids. But no, it was actually a military target, a military center, not a civilian center. Again, I'm not saying this is emotionally satisfying to you, but it helps me get a bit of a clearer picture of what was going on here. The next thing I think is helpful for me to understand as we wrestle with the violence that we see here is this point right here. That the language of total destruction, it's classic conquest genre literature. Now, to do this, we got to talk a little bit about genre and literature in the Bible. My friends, the Bible is not one book. The Bible, my friends, is a library of books written by dozens of different authors throughout history, written and recorded over about an 8,000-year period. And so for us, I think we need to employ some wisdom and employ some grown-up Bible reading skills to understand that I, I think that we're called to be people that read the Bible literally, and not all the time, literally. Did you catch that? We need to employ some wisdom so that we read the Bible literately, not just all the time, 
literally. And I'm not saying don't tweet this, that I don't think there's a ton of stuff that literally happened in the Bible. But we need to understand that there's, as a library of books, the Bible has lots of different genres that are written and recorded for us in it. And there's different tips of the hat to different genres. If you're into horror movies, you know that there's going to be some jump scenes and the music's going to like stab at you out of nowhere. No pun intended with the stab out at you. Um, You know that if you see a movie and it says on the um, Apple iTunes or on um, Netflix that it says that it's a comedy, you can expect to laugh, right? Well, conquest genre is, or conquest literature is a whole genre of scripture or of, uh, no, it's a whole different genre of literature in the ancient world. Different um, civilizations had conquest uh, genre as well to where it would tell stories of them wiping everybody out. And one of the main characteristics of conquest genre literature is that it was like ancient trash talking. That's really what it was. It was like ancient time trash talking when you and your army didn't just beat the other guys, you wiped them out. It was a decisive victory. It wasn't even close. This was ancient trash talking here, right? You think about uh, your teams that you like watching or maybe your kids' teams and you want to trash talk the parents on the other side of the bleachers because you're real mature like that. Uh, when you, when you want to do the trash talking thing, oh, don't we use kind of inflammatory language? We say, oh yeah, we, we're going to murder you guys. We're going to kill you guys. We're going to dominate you guys. We never say it's going to go back and forth real close and we're going to get lucky at the end and win. <laughs> we never talk like that at all. And I want to let you know that this conquest genre of literature in the ancient world, it was always about the decisive, we killed them, we totally destroyed them kind of thing. And so some Bible scholars, faithful Jesus-following Bible scholars, believe that parts of Joshua uses this conquest genre literature and the techniques that this literature uses. Are you guys still with me? Here's an example of this in Joshua where some of scholars believe that this is kind of genre literature, that total destruction language, maybe not literally happening. We see here in Joshua 11, here we see, so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses. So we see here that Joshua did total destruction, beat everybody, took the entire land. But two chapters later, the same author in the same book of the Bible says this, when Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. I thought he took everything over, right? But we see two chapters later, no, and maybe that's not what was going on. And so some Bible-believing, Jesus-following scholars believe that they're using sort of exaggerative, total destruction language, but it's not actually what happened. And they use the scriptures themselves to teach us this. And this is tough. This is some like, you know, following Jesus, uh, Bible 401 stuff to understand, okay, is there a genre of literature that's being employed here to help us understand something? Maybe that didn't literally happen, but if we can literally understand it, it maybe illuminates this truth to us. So the language of total destruction. Some scholars believe that it was exaggerative trash talk. Maybe that's the case. Maybe that helps you. Here's another thing right here, and I find this to be pretty emotionally uh, satisfying, even though it's troubling on the same level. Here's the next thing I want us to understand. That possibly God used Israel, the nation of Israel, as a tool of divine judgment against a purely evil civilization. Perhaps this was a one-off when God said, I'm going to use my people of Israel to take care of an injustice that's been going on way too long. 
Now, there's this really interesting um, short passage in Joshua 5 before Joshua starts to lead his people in to take over the land of Canaan, before there's any blood that's shed at all, we see um, Joshua come face to face with an angel or this angelic messenger from God. And it's a really interesting interaction that we have. Let's read this in uh, Joshua 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? That's what you want to know when you see like an angelic figure with a sword drawn, right? But the response is interesting to me because the angel says, neither. I'm not for you. I'm not against you. I'm doing my own thing. He says, but I, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have now come. Some people will say that uh, the conquest shows us a genocide uh, where God's, God employs his power and his strength for one side to wipe out a whole other side. This passage shows us clearly that God is doing a different thing and God is taking care of business and God is bringing some long-weighted justice to one group of people and he's going to use whoever he can in front of him to make it happen. And it's interesting for us, we need to talk a little bit about the culture of the Canaanites or the Amorites that are in this promised land. In our time, in all of our favorite fiction and all of our favorite literature and storytelling, it's really hard for us to think about black and white, good versus evil, right? There's always a gray we see with our enemies and our villains and our comic book movies or whatever you like to watch. But we need to understand that the Canaanite culture was a uniquely evil and dark culture where for 450 to 500 years, um, there was some dark, evil stuff going on that God might have finally said, I'm done with it. I've been patient and I'm going to wipe it out and start over. So we read um, about the Canaanite culture and archaeology, and it's so dark and tragic, but there were some crazy things that happened in this uniquely evil culture. The first were these things called fertility cults. I think we have a tasteful depiction of what these fertility cults were like. Uh, These were basically sinners where there was prostitution mixed in with their religion. There was this ancient goddess of Asherah, and she was the fertility goddess. And so people came to Asherah to make sure that they were able to have children or to keep their pregnancy um, alive or to keep the mothers alive because uh, maternal uh, mortality was through the roof in the ancient world. And so we hear these stories throughout antiquity of a pregnant couple coming to this temple, and they basically tell the pregnant couple, hey, if you want to live, mom, and if you want the baby to live, your husband needs to stay here for a week and do what we tell him to do with the prostitutes for an entire week. There are times when a couple can't get pregnant. We hear this story in antiquity where they're supposed to both spend a month separate from each other, but inside of this fertility cult, just letting the prostitutes inside of this cult do whatever they want for a month, just so the Asherah, the goddess of fertility, will smile upon them in their pregnancy. My friends, how dark is that? This was the most prevalent cult in this culture. This is the understanding of sexuality for generations in the Canaanite culture. Let me ask you this. How abusive of women is this? Just pawns in the system being abused by men who said that Asherah is on their side. This is a terrible injustice. And I think what ups the ante from the fertility cult was the reality that child sacrifice was the name of the game. It was the norm for the Canaanite culture. This depiction of child sacrifice 
The, the God during, uh, for the people of Canaan was the God of Baal, or later we hear about the God of Molech. And Molech desired and longed for, and the only way you were getting a blessing from Baal or Molech was for you to offer up your firstborn son. And there was this statue of Baal, it's depicted here, where the f- belly was open and it was a furnace. It's where mothers and fathers had to offer up, or believe they had to offer up their for- firstborn child to this evil depiction of a god. Archaeologists have found graveyards of the Canaanite culture where there are tens of thousands of childlike skeletons. This was just the norm every day, multiple, multiple times a day. And let me tell you, God heard every one of the cries of those children. He heard every one of the sobs of the mothers and the fathers. But God was patient for 400 to 500 years, God said, I'm going to be patient. I want them to turn towards me. But then, 500 years in, God's like, no more. This injustice will not stand. We are starting over. Take out this evil culture. Let me tell you, like, I am uncomfortable with both sides of this equation. Because my blood boils as I have to, like, share the darkness that happened in this culture with you. But I just can't quite wrap my head around God making it all happen at the same time. Let me say this. Sometimes you might wrestle with God and wrestle with the concept of God because uh, you look at the injustices that you find in the world and you're like, where's God in this? Here's an example of God standing up and saying, no, this is not happening on my watch. As we talked last week, God is slow to anger and abounding in love, and he was so slow. But perhaps God, after these many years, was like, nope, we're done. We're wiping the slate clean. Maybe for you, that answers this question of how this could happen. But here's the last thing I want you to understand. Um, Is this right here, that God's desire was and is always peace, that God did allow this to happen, employed uh, violence to happen in this specific case for this darkly evil group of people, but his desire was and is always peace. To show you this, uh, in the, the conquest of Jericho, we have the one highlight, the story that you know, bubbles to the surface is the story of Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute woman who actually helped Israel. And, and she said she believed in the God of Israel, and so she helped Israel accomplish their mission there. And so we're told that Rahab and her entire family are spared, and they were enfolded into God's family. His desire was not to destroy Rahab because she was a Canaanite. His desire was for relationship with Rahab. We also find this really interesting passage in in, uh, Joshua chapter 11, where it really takes a strange turn in the middle, but it shows us again that God's desire was always for peace. Let's pick up here. So Joshua took the entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, Indiana, uh, the western foothills, the Arabah. It's funny, I got to insert humor whenever I can this morning. And the mountains of Israel with their foothills from Mount Halak, which rises uh, towards Ser, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. Uh, Hermon, that's a funny name for a mountain. Uh, he captured all their kings and put them to death. With this sounds like a classic Joshua. We're slaughtering everybody, destroy everybody, total destruction, but we see this very next part of the passage, Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. 
That's an interesting little except. To me, it shows me that there's a possibility that God's people and Joshua, they offered a peace treaty to everyone. They wanted peace. They wanted these people to change their ways and and fold them into the ways and the nation of God. It sort of shows us that people wanted to make a a peace treaty with them. A peace God has always, and is always, his desire is for peace, even in the midst of all the violence that we read about. And I want to turn this personally to you and to me as we get ready to close this, but the reality is that you and I, we're on the other side of peace often in our own lives, aren't we? We, we employ violence against us and other people all the time. I'll put it this way, that we stand in the way of our peace and others' peace all the time. Don't you think like we stand in the way of our peace all the time with God and with ourselves and with others? I mean, we, we know what will bring us joy and satisfaction, but we overindulge. We, we think about ourselves before others. We think that's going to be really hard to do it God's way, and so we go our way, and then we're just not living in a way of peace. Or we are, let our selfishness get in the way, and we think what's good for me and mine, and we forget about the people that are made in God's image to the left and the right of us, we stand in the way of our peace and others' peace all the time. And you know the best way that I know, the best way that I hold on to, that I know that our God was and is always for peace is because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. When there was the ultimate roadblock to peace in my life and in your life, uh, God sent his son Jesus to become peace on our behalf. He inserted his own self into the story to have violence afflicted on him so that you and I can experience peace. Do you know how I know that God is all about peace? Because he sent Jesus into the story to experience that violence and the brokenness, and all the weight of my sin and shame so that I could experience peace. Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, an early church planner in the first century, wrote to this church in this place called Colossae. It's recorded for us in Colossians here. But this is how he describes Jesus being peace. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So much is happening here in this short, short passage. We're told that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And you know what this means? That everything that God is is visible in Jesus. Do you want to know what God looks like? God looks like Jesus. Do you want to know what God acts like? God acts like Jesus. His fullness was found in this Jewish carpenter Messiah in the first century. That is who God is. We didn't always know that, but we know that now that his fullness dwells in Jesus. And what did his heart beat for? What did his heart beat out of his chest for? Reconciliation, making peace between people groups, between individuals and their selves and themselves and God. It says he's there to reconcile all things. And how did he make peace? He didn't just talk about peace. He didn't give a lecture or a sermon. He became peace. He let the violence and the brokenness and the sin and the shame hit him to where he became our peace through the blood shed on the cross. You know how I know that God is first and foremost for peace is because of Jesus. (laughs) That's how I know. That's what I hold on to. 
My friends, like I said, there's no bow, there's no ribbon on this message this morning. It's awkward, it's hard, and I wish I didn't have to give this sermon. But it's there. And I hope that you can like maybe have some tools to help you see and reconcile um, these things this morning. And if there's anything that I can leave you with, is this, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That is what God is like, and he's always been that way. We didn't always know that, but man, we know that now. And is this God violent or peaceful? No, he is not just peaceful, he is the peacemaker. And I hold on to that in confusing times.